92nd Street Y online media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, Adaptive Reuse in Urban Green Space, features Adam Ganser, Vice President of Planning and Design for Friends of the High Line, in discussion with New York Post real estate reporter Zachary Cusson. It was recorded on February 4th, 2017, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Good morning, everyone. How are you? So as New York City reaches new heights in terms of sky-high buildings and a swelling population, space in the general sense becomes a precious commodity that's pretty tough to find. So we're wondering how this affects public space and how do cities become more livable these days? Adaptive reuse in which the reclaiming of abandoned infrastructure leads to a conversion into park space becomes a pretty critical step. And if it seems like this is a huge feat to achieve, you're right. But if the process sounds familiar to you, that's because we have examples of it right here in our backyard. The high line is a highly popular completed project, and the low line, which is in the works, is another of its sort. So we're going to discuss adaptive reuse with two experts today. I'm joined by Adam Ganser, the lovely gentleman right there. And he's the vice president for planning and design at the Friends of the High Line, which is the nonprofit conservancy that manages the High Line. And to his left is the lovely gentleman, Jonathan Miller, who's the city's leading property appraisal expert. And we're gonna talk about real estate and the numbers that apply. So why don't you come on up and we'll get this started. Can you guys hear me here? Yes. Excellent. So I think it's appropriate to start first with some background. And I'm wondering, especially with the High Line, if you can give the audience some background into your project, like what, what it is, where it's located, and what the inspiration was behind it. Right. I, I'm assuming many of you are familiar with the High Line. Uh, at this point, it is a mile and a half long viaduct with a park on top of it. It runs from Gansevoort, which is where the Whitney Museum is, all the way up to 34th Street, just south of the Javits Center. Prior to its conversion into a park, it was a freight rail system that went all the way down to Spring Street. It was built in the 1930s and ran pretty continuously through the 1980s when it was uh, basically abandoned. Uh, and the conversion to a park started in the late 1990s uh, and took roughly 15 years, I'd say, to get off the ground, and so the first section opened in 2008, 2009. And this is for both of you, because you know you know one end of this and like the urban planning aspect, and you know like the, the streetscape surrounding it. I'm just wondering like what drawbacks there were in city parks before the creation of the High Line. Was there like a lack of creativity in terms of creating these spaces and like untapped potential because of it? I, that's a great question. I think that the, the impetus for projects like the High Line really is that there is this aging infrastructure. It's expensive to tear down, and there is a different vision for it. Uh, at the High Line, you, at the north end, you had Penn Station, which was demolished. I think that uh, was in many people's mind when the project was advocated for. And at the southern end, you had the West Village, which uh, had its battles between Jane Jacobs and, and of course, uh, <laughs> I'm forgetting the name, but uh, the, the 
general direction for the city in the early 20th century was around demolishing these types of infrastructure. Robert, so, Moses. Robert Moses. Robert Moses. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that, uh, uh, and I remember initially uh, with the High Line, you know, the, the municipalities like New York were against this type of introduction. They just wanted it torn down because I think they saw it as something that would cost them maintenance to uh, maintain in the future and budgets were tight um, and then they came around and they they really saw that it actually became a vital component to the city to draw in and actually uh, indirectly bring in real estate tax revenues from more development. So did that mean it was easy to make this happen? <laughs> no, the, we're seeing Highline-like projects around the country and I think one of the main things that uh, kind of binds them together is their physical characteristics. They're long, they're linear, they run through a variety of different neighborhoods, a variety of different property ownerships that make them complex. Uh, they don't fall neatly into any city or state agency, so there isn't one entity that's responsible for making them happen. Um, so most of the time you'll see citizen advocates that are very naive but have pie-in-the-sky dreams about these projects that push them forward because they don't they don't upfront get the complexity of it, and that's actually an ad- uh, advantage. Now, that makes me wonder, I think that's a good segue into the next question, is that why steps weren't taken earlier to create these types of spaces? Because there's just a lot of work on the back end that could take years to suss out? I think that, um, I, that could be part of it, but I don't think that there was the pressure uh, that required to, to demand more green space. This area uh, on the west side of Manhattan in the 1970s and 80s was not a hot spot. It wasn't a place where people were uh, dying to go live. But as more and more people have been coming into the cities, there's pressure for more amenities, more green space. And you have to get creative because you can't create another central park in the middle of Manhattan. You just can't pull that off. Also, too, I think one of the, one of the telling patterns with the success of the High Line has been the massive influx of municipalities around the country coming to seek counsel from people that actually did it. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in suburban markets, uh, uh, you know, in the Midwest, and uh, sort of empty <laughs> rail lines became bike and trail. You know, that was like the big really? thing. It, it's a big thing in the Midwest. Um, unused lines are removed, and it becomes basically a park, but a very mm-hmm. long, linear yeah. type park. And they did it in a tight, congested urban market. That's not where I'm from. That's, <laughs> we can't have nice things where I grew up. Um, so is there still a need for greater green space in New York? Um, because with, with the high line being what it is, and like the, the kind of standard that it's set, and now the low line, I mean, it makes me wonder. I mean, this is, this is in demand. I think there, are, especially in places like New York, where you have limited land area, uh, there are more people coming. We're hearing you know, every year cider, subway ridership has beat the previous years. There are more people living in the city now than ever before, and they demand green space. And I think uh, the way we move through the city is changing. People are biking, people are walking, people are jogging. They want green spaces to do these things, uh, and we don't have enough. So that's why you're seeing Brooklyn Bridge Park being built, the High Line, Hudson River Park has been launched. That's a fantastically successful place. Uh, But the reality is they're all really, really crowded. And I think that's a testament to their popularity and the need for more. Yeah, there's like a, there's a tension, you know, a push and pull on uh, the introduction of green space because space is at a premium. But on the other hand, it 
serves as an anchor or a, a draw for additional development or restarting a community or, or, or a neighborhood, um, I think there'll always be that sort of push and pull um, going forward, but at least in a project like this, you can see the benefit, which has been, um, it's, I believe it's the number one tourist destination in New York now, yeah. um, which is kind of mind-boggling. Well, it's perfect that you bring that up because my question for you is what kind of impact on real estate like greater green space in New York creates? Because I imagine it's a huge value driver. Well, well, it is because, first of all, it is a hook. It is a... It is something to, I, I, I remember, this is, I, I don't know if I have the times right, but I remember about 20 years ago, consultants that were coming in for the city on the taxation issues for real estate surrounding the High Line came to me and they were looking at uh, Gramercy Park and saying, well, here's a private park, green space, and you have this residential around it, how much does that add to the value or the demand for that market? So that's a very, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it, it's not this, obviously not the same scenario, but it's that thinking of an anchor point or a hook. So what ends up happening is you have two, two. one is that you, you create or inspire new development. Um, that's number one. And number two is that existing properties there um, are become elevated in value. I mean, that's the long-term view. The city benefits because they see additional tax revenues to, for the you know, to cover the services. Um, and it's just one important piece of why you know, New York City's population is growing five years ahead of trend. I mean, it's, 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 it's a draw, and this is one component of it. Right. And is it still true that properties located in an area uh, that give them a park view command more value than those with a river view? Absolutely. I'd like to say that in, in, uh, in, in Manhattan specifically that uh, we're very inward looking. We like to look in at ourselves. Any other metro area in the U.S., the premium is looking out over water. But here, there's a far bigger premium of looking out over, say, Central Park or a park space than the water, which I, I you know, it's sort of mind-boggling, but that, that, is what, that is what it is. So it even places more importance on a component like additional green space in terms of quality of life issues, in terms of what people are, appealed, are attracted to. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd like to gear now towards um, specifics of you know the development of these adaptive reuse spaces, and it's not like anyone can just you know claim a space in New York City and call it their own. And um, Adam, I'm wondering if you can tell me the steps in how the Highline became a reality, in terms of like how you created park space in a neighborhood where it previously didn't really exist. It's a long and sordid story, so I'll <laughs> have to keep it short. Um, I think the keep it under five hours. Right. So. <laughs> It involved uh, a lot of politicians and a lot of lawyers, uh, yeah. to be perfectly frank. Uh, the first step was getting CSX on board with giving the, the viaduct, the physical viaduct, to the city. And that wasn't a hard sell because if they didn't give it to the city, they would have had to pay for the demolition, which was around $100 million. So they were thinking really? it would be easier for them to convey this to city property. Um, that's all assuming that you would get over a demolition order, which was signed by um, former Mayor Giuliani just before he left office. 
Uh, so we had to get over that hurdle, sue the city to prevent them from um, demolishing the, the High Line, uh, get CSX to give the High Line to the city, and then start convincing individual property owners. The High Line went over literally tens of different private properties, uh, convincing each and every one of them that there was a way for them to monetize the value of their property without removing the High Line. And that actually went through some properties. It goes through uh, ten, yeah. I'd say probably thirty properties. So you're negotiating with with each of these properties, um, and ultimately the way that that worked was by um, through a change in zoning that allowed those property owners to sell their air rights, their developable space, to properties well beyond the adjacent properties, which isn't normally how it works in Manhattan. It, it allowed them to get a market value for their property. Um, and that, that was the, those were the kind of the biggest triggers to make it happen. Um, with the rail yard section up at the Hudson Yards, I think when the RFPs went out for that enormous development, uh, almost all of them came back with an assumption that they were going to tear down the High Line. So that brought out another round of yeah. meetings with, you know, 20 lawyers in a room trying to figure out what was the right thing to do. And I think ultimately what happened was when uh, Related, who got that project, saw the number of people walking on the High Line, all sort of like zombies heading north. Uh, they, saw, they saw the value of those people coming into their open space, into their mall. So they, they very quickly turned their, uh, turned their perspective on, on the project, and now we have a, a very good collaborative relationship with them. Um, so it's uh, a, a bunch of the different things that went into making it happen. Got it. Hi, sir. How are you? All right. How are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm filling in. So, Would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Charlie Bendit. Um, I'm with Taconic Investment Partners. Actually, we were a beneficiary of that uh, zoning. We yeah. built the Caledonia yeah, yeah. Yeah. with Related. Right. And um, I'll tell you about me in a minute. But um, uh, we had this, we, we bought this property that was going through, actually, we were going to go through a rezoning separately with this garden center that we owned. And uh, we decided to stand back as the city went through the West Chelsea rezoning. And we were, we were zoned for about a 7.2 FAR, and we were able to get a High Line bonus that enabled us to build about another 100,000 square feet. So it was, a, uh, it was a big thing. And now that we have this building built and it's condos and rentals, um, I will tell you that we probably get a $5 premium in rents because people can walk out their front door and be right on the High Line. And it's right at the point where the High Line crosses from the east side of 10th Avenue to the west side of 10th Avenue. So if you know it has the amphitheater there, and it's very cool to sit there and look up 10th Avenue uh, as the cars are going up there, and it's very activated. It's probably one of the most exciting amenities that New York City has uh, developed over the last, I don't know, period of time. How much did that factor into your marketing plans? Um, and it makes me wonder if people like really flock there, like we need to live here because we have that. Well, it, it didn't go into our marketing plan because we didn't know really what it was going to be. Really? So we, we actually had, to, it was really complicated because we had to dig our footings and dig our foundation around the supports for the High Line and protect that whole area. And the High Line was being developed or being created at that time. So there was all sorts of abatement going on because you had all sorts of lead paint and crazy stuff in, in that needed to be stripped off. And that was being done as we were building the building. Um, so we really didn't know what it was going to be other than conceptually. Um, 
we were the first building, and I don't know how many other buildings were able to get access directly to the High Line, but because we were the first building, I think we were the first building to be built, new building to be built along the High Line, we were able to secure direct access to the High Line. And the city tried to hold us for ransom, but we were able to negotiate a, a, a pretty good, I think they wanted like millions of dollars. I think we negotiated something much lower. Um, but we have direct access to the High Line. And in return for that, we provided two bathrooms, a janitor closet, an elevator, and a staircase up from 16th Street up onto the High Line. Now, um, I, this all kind of makes me wonder, I feel like this filters into a community outreach aspect for all this kind of development. I'm, you know, I'm sure that you had to inform nearby residents of your plans, and it seems like there were positive ones because you had real estate development go up that seemed very popular. But what kind of feedback were you receiving overall? I think the, I mean, the story of the High Line is, isn't finished, and I think we're right at a midpoint from initial success to now being a little bit self-reflective on what has happened in the neighborhood. Um, the idea of the project came from uh, Robert Hammond and Josh David, who were both from the neighborhood, uh, and were both at a community board meeting, this is the lore of the High Line, um, and so they kind of brainchild this idea, thinking that there were other people around that would be really interested in realizing that there was nobody, it was just them. They kind of <laughs> reluctantly took it on. And uh, this is a little bit before my day, but they, there were endless community meetings, uh, meeting with people in West Chelsea. This is all happening during a, a rezoning that was happening, and it would have happened with or without the Highline. Highline was part of that, of course. Um, but I think what we saw is that uh, none of us anticipated the, the changes that we see now. Maybe everybody at the time was naive, but this was many years ago, and that area was very different from how it is right now. Um, we met with all of the um, NYCHA houses, Elliot Chelsea, Fulton. We had literally endless meetings with community boards, uh, and we thought everybody was on board, and I think it really was a community project, but when the High Line opened, um, people in the Elliot Chelsea houses really weren't showing up. They didn't feel like it was for them, which was, for us, terribly depressing and it sort of helped us revise how we were doing our community engagement. Um, and at the same time, I think that, you know, the, I'll jump in and say this is one of the first parks uh, along with Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is very specifically funded through real estate mechanisms. And those real estate mechanisms are dependent on the, the things you're talking about, the metrics here, increase in value, new units, and all of that is going to lead to a very different neighborhood. So at this point, it's very clear that that model works from an economic perspective. But is there a way to leverage that economic perspective to start addressing social and environmental issues on future projects? I don't think that that's going to be something that we can ignore. Um, and I think it's something we're thinking a lot about at Friends of the Highland. Got it. Um, how does financing this project compare to all that? I mean, that sounds like there were a lot of challenges involved with what you were just mentioning, but financing seems tough. But you guys have managed to raise a lot of money. Yeah, I'm going, going back to the economic argument, what was presented to the city, to the Bloomberg administration, was if it was basically a return on investment. If you put in a certain amount of money for the capital construction, the city will re re receive more than that in incremental tax revenue. 
And then our deal as Friends of the Highline was that we would operate and maintain the park. And we do that. We don't get 98% of what it costs to operate and maintain the park is privately raised by Friends of the Highline. A lot of people don't know that. We get hardly any money from the Parks Department. That was the deal that the city made, and they made a very good deal. Um, so we have been very uh, successful at raising money around the capital project in addition to the money that we've gotten from the city. The real challenge is ongoing maintenance for the park. Uh, I think if we could do one thing differently, it would have been to build in some type of ongoing value capture model, um, a bid, something around the high line so that we're getting money every year and not having to privately raise, which is what they were able to do in Brooklyn Bridge uh, through their real estate deals. Uh, now for all of you, how did these adaptive reuse spaces, the high line, the low line, which is in the, in the works, um, how did these make the city become more livable for those who live here? Well, uh, just in a, as a general comment, um, uh, the city, after the financial crisis, became sort of this hub of new urbanism, this, you know, the, the focus on walkability, uh, uh, you know, urban living as opposed to working in the city and, um, uh, you know, competing, uh, competing more strongly with the suburban markets. And um, in, in some ways, you could almost say that the city has been too successful at that you know, because we're, we have some pricing affordability issues as a result, right. and, which is something that he was just alluding to. But the idea is that um, it, it has been a tremendous success, and, and, and a big part of that has been expansion of green space, creation of sort of these anchor points that draw in development and, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of new thinking into some of these neighborhoods. As a, as a developer, one of the things that we're looking for, and I think that residents are looking for, and office workers are looking for, is outdoor space. And there's a, you know, there's a shortage of outdoor space in any city. Um, the creation of the High Line created a great amenity for people that are living and working on the west side. So we, um, we redeveloped a building called 111 8th Avenue, which is now home to Google. We also built the Apple Store on 14th Street, and we built the Caledonia, and we built the Samsung building. So we're vested in, in that neighborhood. And I will tell you that, that Googlers and uh, people that, other people that work in 111 8th Avenue and people that work in that neighborhood look at the High Line as a great amenity. You want to take a break in the middle of the day and go for a walk in the park? Well, where could you do that? Um, there was no place to do that. Now you have a place to go and relax and, and maybe just take a few minutes out and um, contemplate the river. Uh, it's a wonderful amenity to have. And it's something to be able to create more of those opportunities, I think just enhances the lifestyle of New York City. So I think one of the reasons that I was asked to fill in for the person that is developing the High Line is because we're developing a project called Essex Crossing, which I'll talk about later on another panel. Um, and. If the high line, uh, if the low line actually comes to fruition, it too is a great amenity because we have we will have office space and residential space, and those people that not only live there but live in the neighborhood will benefit by having this wonderful, very unique park um, underground in a magnificent space. So it's all about quality of living, and and um, that's what keeps people here. They are here because they enjoy. Uh, the living, working, playing experience, but they also are here because they enjoy the quality of life, and these types of parks enhance that quality of life. Can you discuss Essex Crossing for those in the audience who may not be familiar? 
You mean give away everything I was going to say on the next panel? Uh, <laughs> just I'll, a summary. I'll ask you different questions. I'm moderating. The <laughs> um, so, um, Essie, you want me to go into a little bit of the history? A little bit. All right. So, if you may remember, well, in the 1950s, um, the Lower East Side was um, uh, a bunch of tenement buildings, and they were condemned, and the whole area was raised. And a number of buildings, if you go down to Grand Street and south of Delancey Street, there are a whole bunch of apartment buildings that were built in the 50s. There were nine sites that were not developed, and they weren't developed because the communities could never agree on what to build here. Um, in the prior administration, the Bloomberg administration, um, the mayor decided that this was going to be one of the things that he changed. And it took five years for him and his team to, or, to organize all of the local community members and have them come together and agree on what would be developed here. There were people that wanted 100% market rate housing. There were people that wanted 100% affordable housing. There were some that wanted all low-income housing. But he was able to bring everybody together and agree on a plan. And then they went through um, the, what they call a, uh, a ULERP, which is the process by which you change the zoning. And they went out with an RFP in 2013. And we won that RFP. So there were nine sites um, that we're developing, and we're going to have over a thousand apartments. About 160 will be condominiums. Um, the rest will all be rentals, and half of those rentals will be market rate, and half of them will be affordable. In phase one, which is four buildings that are under construction now, one building is 100% affordable for seniors, um, and two buildings are 50% market rate, 50% affordable at different levels of affordability, and we can talk about affordability later on and how you define that. And one building is a condominium of 55 condominium units, 11 of which are for affordable, um, and um, 44 of which are market rate, in addition to which there's 900,000 feet of commercial space. And we can go into more of that later. But that's, in a nutshell, what it is. Um, and it'll be built over seven or eight years. and. Hopefully, I'll live to see it all done. <laughs> so you should go to that panel later and learn more. Um, how long did it take for developers to, um, to target their efforts on building around the High Line? Because there's been a huge amount of development around it over the years. And it just makes me wonder, was it a, a fast reaction? Or did people eventually fill in the holes? Uh, no, it was uh, it was meteoric. Um, you know, we, we acquired this site, in, uh, which was um, formerly the Chelsea Garden Center, maybe some of you remember that, um, on 16th Street, um, between 16th and 17th Street. It was a bunch of different buildings all owned by the same owner. We bought that in 2003. And the area, there was talk about the High Line. I don't think it really had taken off. There were a lot of discussions. We participated in some of those discussions where the major landowners were negotiating. Um, and. Uh, for example, there's a new site, there's a site under construction right now at 76 10th Avenue, which was formerly a parking lot, and Edison parking lot is now under development. That developer was able to secure a little bit more in incentives, um, development incent in entitlements, uh, because the, he owned a lot of land along 10th Avenue. Uh, but we were lucky, because we got in early, but the prices went up very, very quickly between uh, 2003 and, and even today, prices escalated um, very rapidly um, in that period of time. Land prices and also resulting condo prices right. and rental prices. Right. Right. Um, 
You had touched on this earlier, and I want to get more in-depth into this now. Um, the Highline has inspired a number of projects around the country, but also around the world. And the Sky Garden in Seoul, in South Korea, is opening in April. And now the Green Line in Toronto, which I believe is the refurbishment of a, an abandoned highway, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm part Canadian. My family would kill me if I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> But, you know, these are things that are happening right now. It just makes me wonder if you and your team, when the Highline was under development, anticipated this kind of activity. Well, that, uh, that implies that we were the first and we, and we weren't. I think that there was, uh, there was one project in France called the Promenade Planté, which was a similar yeah. type of project, rail-based project, um, that I think served as the inspiration for, for some of the first things that we were thinking about. And at the same time, there was a, when we were starting to get our process going, uh, the Reading Viaduct in Philadelphia was trying to do the same thing. The 606 in Chicago, they were all. This was a little bit of a buzz around in a number of cities, and I think there was just more happening and more more ability to make it happen in New York. So our project jumped ahead of the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, but from the beginning, I think we saw that this was uh, a new field that was emerging, and just to dig a little deeper there, we're now working with 15 to 18 projects around the country that are all facing some of the similar challenges that we're facing, anything from displacement and gentrification to capital financing, long-term funding, um, social equity, environmental issues. Uh, and I think the, the challenges are so consistent in every city. You have the project you spoke about in Toronto, the Atlanta Beltline. Miami Underline, the LA River is a very similar project. These are all infrastructure reuse projects. As soon as they start talking about the project becoming a reality, land speculation starts, starts to happen. And it happens so quickly that unless some type of policy and regulation is part of the rollout of the project, it's almost too late to kind of capture um, some of that land for affordable housing, et cetera. Um, so those are some of the bigger issues I think that we're having, but uh, I think what we are getting right is the, the sort of the physical urban design of these projects are fascinating. They're changing the way people use their cities, and it's the social side that I think we still need to work on. Yeah, actually, that's a good um, topic I want to get into now because uh, with, with the Highlands development and all the luxury properties around it, how does that all jive with the area's pre-existing stock of housing projects? Um, have you seen the movie Class Divide? I've heard of it. I still haven't seen yes. it. I saw like all the yeah, all it's, the thoughts around it. It's an interesting documentary about the changes. It focused yeah. mainly on on the uh, NYCHA houses and the Avenue School, which was built on the opposite side of Tenth Avenue. Um, I think that for a lot of people in the neighborhood, the developments, uh, the new developments, are a bit of a shock. Even more so, what's happening at the Hudson Yards, which mm -hmm. is you know like. Pittsburgh landing in a four-block area. That's um, true. On so stilts. I, on stilts, yeah. So I think that um, we, as a not-for-profit conservancy, are doing what we can do to make sure that our park is a park for everyone, and we are reaching out specifically with our programming targeted at the people in this neighborhood and New York City generally. Uh, that is the way that we can start handling some of the, some of the issues that have come up. But I, I can't speak for, for anybody, but I'm sure it was a, it's a bit of a shock. Right. Um, now, I'd like to open this to the audience if you have any questions. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the low line. 
Yeah, let's get into background on the lowland uh, because these are quite different projects, and so um, it's it's actually nothing like the highland. So, well, it's underground. It's underground. Yeah. <laughs> Let me qualify my statements by saying that I'm only a, a, uh, maybe a beneficiary of the of, of the low line. Um, it's being developed by um, by two guys, Daniel Barish and. What's the other fellow's name? James Ramsey. Right, right. Um, who was supposed to be here today, right? Um, yes. He threw his back out, I think, trying to dig deeper under the low. <laughs> um, but he, um, it, it, it's, 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 it's a. It's true. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, have you been into Grand Central Station to the Oyster Bar and you've seen the, 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 the right, the terracotta and the, the, the vaulted ceilings? Well, that same condition exists under Delancey Street. And this was an old trolley station. And what would happen is the, trial, the trains, the trolleys would come under, come over the Williamsburg Bridge, go down underneath Delancey Street, and turn around and go back. Well, this was an abandoned station. And these guys had this great idea, uh, probably inspired by the High Line, that they could create a park underground. But there's one little problem with creating a park underground. A park, you would think, would have greenery. And how do you get light in to underground in order to create the greenery. So one of the guys is like a NASA engineer. He's a rocket scientist, I guess. And um, he had this concept of harnessing sunlight and by uh, fiber optics, bringing that light down uh, underground. And they've created this incredible concept of bringing light down underground and having a garden. As a matter of fact, um, on one of our development sites on uh, Essex Street, they have a model of this, and they have a park, and they have the, the actual apparatus that brings that sunlight down underground. So it's, 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 real, it's unique, it's fascinating, and with the development that's going on all around the Lower East Side, and in fact in Brooklyn, and the fact that the Williamsburg Bridge is right there, and the L train will be out of service, but the JM and Z line will be fully operational. Um, it, it's really a great amenity for not only the Lower East Side, but also Brooklyn. Um, and uh, one of the interesting features of it, and one of the reasons we're supporting it, is because our Essex Crossing project is directly adjacent to it, and there may be an opportunity to open up the um, low line to Essex Crossing. And if you really want to know what, it, what that means, 110, where am I, 115? <laughs> At 1.15 or 1.30, that's when our session is. We'll I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, the, the, um, the market line that we're developing. But it's a fascinating concept. Yeah. Um, and they're raising money, so if you care to contribute to the success, it's, I'm sure that they'd, be wel they'd welcome it. But they have gotten approval from the city and from the Department of Transportation to, um, I think it's the MTA actually, to actually proceed with their plans. So now they're in the fundraising mode. They've already designed in concept what it's going to be. Uh, so they're now into design development and raising money to make it happen. It's also in preview mode right now. You can go down and through the end of the month, I think, they have like a, a little demonstration set up, which is worth checking out. I, I know you had a question. Yes. Was that problem 
There, there wasn't a problem with them accessing it. I think it was a problem where they came up and they didn't feel like it was for them. And so, uh, they, yeah, we saw that we do, uh, every two years we do a visitor survey where we, you know, we hire a survey corporation. They come up and they ask every seventh or eighth person information about their background. Um, and through the, that surveying, we found that over the first two years, there was no bump. There were, there were people from Elliott, Chelsea, and Fulton were not coming. But since then, we've, we've seen a bump every single year. And I think that that is directly related to our, the Friends Group targeted outreach to those, uh, to those projects. Yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. I live in that area. That's why. That's why I bought an apartment there. It's tremendous upside. Yeah. We haven't had any discussions with Columbia, but I'm sure the, the the issues are similar. And I think that what we're trying to do again, the Highline is not entirely built. We have another small section that will start uh, in in a few months. And what we're hoping to do is reframe our community outreach to actually bring a, uh, a recurring group of community representatives into our office to become part of our team so they're aware and um, providing input on the project that is, as it's moving forward and feeling more like it's their park, like they had a stake in it and a part in it being developed. Okay. Where's yeah. the next What's that? There's, um, when you get to the top of the second section and you kind of are forced to take a left, if you take a right, you go out onto the spur, which goes out over 10th Avenue and, and dead ends right on top of 10th Avenue. I know there's a question over here. Yeah, um, my question is for Adam. Oh, James. Um, <laughs> um, so you mentioned um, that you're talking to people from other cities who have similar projects. Yep. And um, for those groups, as well as if anybody from the low line were here, what's your advice I think, and I may be wrong, but I think New York is going to have, that'll be a problem that's somewhat unique to New York. I know that the 606 in Chicago is having similar issues, but it's, it's a much more active project, meaning you can ri ride your bike on it, run on it, it's, um, and the space isn't as constrained. Uh, crowding is an issue that we have, but it's not the biggest issue that we have. I think the biggest issue we have is making sure that the project is equitable, that uh, it's built for everybody and everybody feels welcome and everybody benefits from it not just no offense real estate developers um so there, there needs to be a um i'm not a real estate yeah, developer where i, I leave now it's a bit of a cliche but we're we're talking about these projects with this group through you know the, the triple bottom line you have they are being a lot of them are being built because the cities want to see an economic impact there needs to be a social impact and there needs to be an environmental impact and all of those things need to be weighed. Up to this point, we only have a way to monetize the, the real estate impact. So it's coming up with some lever to make the others valuable. 
That has to be our last question, but you know, I guess we'll be around. Should you have any others, just stop up. We're friendly to approach and to speak to you. So thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for listening to this 92Y program. For more information, visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 2017 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.